on the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we will uh, continue our look at Roughing It by Mark Twain. Um, I've, I've kind of roughly broken this book up into four sections. One is like the journey to the West, the stagecoach ride, the, the, the commentary gives on the way. Second part would be his time as a prospector, and I talked a lot about that in the last episode. Then his time as a journalist, which we'll look at in this episode. And then in the final part, my exploration on Roughing It, I'll talk about his Pacific journey, his journey to Hawaii, which uh, makes up the final quarter or so of the book. So um, now it's, you know, not not quite divided up in direct quarters that way, but it's it's close, close enough for, for our purposes. So, um, let's, let's read a passage, uh, of, of roughing it from chapter, this would be 48. Um, the first 26 graves in the Virginia cemetery were occupied by murdered men. So everyone said, so everyone believed. And so they will always say and believe the reason why there was so much slaughtering done was that in the new mining district the rough element predominates and a person is not respected until he has killed his man that was the expression used if an honest individual arrived they did not inquire if he was a capable honest industrious but if he had killed his man if he had not he gravitated to his natural and proper position that of a man of small consequence if he had the cordiality of his reception was graduated according to the number of his dead it was tedious work struggling up to a position of influence with bloodless hands but when a man came with the blood of half a dozen men on his soul, his worth was recognized at once, and his acquaintance was sought. In Nevada, for a time, the lawyer, the editor, the banker, the chief desperado, the chief gambler, and the saloonkeeper occupied the same level in society, and it was the highest. The cheapest and easy way to become an influential man and be looked up to by the community at large was to stand behind the bar where a cluster diamond pinned and sell whiskey. I'm not sure, but that the saloonkeeper held a shade higher rank than other members of society. His weight had gold. It was his privilege to say how the election should go. No great movement could succeed without the countenance and direction of the saloon keeper. It was a high favor when the chief saloon keeper consented to serve in the legislature or the board of aldermen. Youthful ambition hardly aspired to much, so much to the honor of the law or the army and navy as to the dignity and proprietorship in a saloon. End quote. So um, he goes on, uh, Mark Twain here goes on quite a bit about the saloon keepers and, and kind of the status. Now, obviously, we have here a theme we've been talking about for a while already, which is that that kind of more democratic capitalism of the frontier. Like, that was a big theme last time. And of, of course, I ta also talked about how that got replaced with a with a more brutal capitalism, right, that we recognize the capitalism of huge institutions just laying waste to the land and the people in an area, turning them into surplus value through any means necessary. 
that's what happened to the West. But there was this moment and when you know, like the so-called Wild West, when conditions were more flat, like a, in a Tocquevillean sense, right? And a more equality of conditions, at least for, for white men. Um, and he kind of hints that as much here, saying the saloon keeper and the editor and uh, the chief gambler and chief desperado, the banker, lawyer, all have that high class in society, right? Or this broad other idea that respect comes through violence, which is something that is accessible to, to anyone, right? Anyone can kill a man, right? Uh, in theory, of course, there's many people who won't and don't. Mark Twain doesn't kill anyone. But, you know, that that's an easy access to respectability in this frontier town. Um, but on this list, of course, is the editor, which is what Mark Twain by this point had become in in Nevada was a newspaper editor, right? And what are they interested in? They're in the, interested in the news of, you know, some state news, some government news, but that's like not of primary interest. Of primary interest is violence and inquests, right? So we get a lot of discussion here about how they would compete to get to the inquests first and have the first report on, on certain things. Yeah, they, they fight over things like the first access of the, the school report or different government reports, but largely what the bread and butter of their business is, is inquests into murders and, and reporting on that. And of course, in the same way, there is a lot of fudging the, the reality of the news, exaggeration. And it's pretty clear Mark Twain kind of worked his storytelling um, muscles and his muscles to in his ability to exaggerate and his skill at, at telling stories in humorous ways as, as an editor. It was, it was a way he, he sold papers. So um, we're still in this realm of, of, uh, of, a, of that kind of democratic capitalism made by empire laying waste to what came before, right? The bulldozer of empire, destroying Native American cultures, destroying what existed before, creating fertile ground for, for a brief moment in history you know, a dozen years, 10 years, maybe even less in some places, a handful of years in which conditions can be equal and then they're disrupted. If if Mark Twain would come a little bit later, if this would have been like life on the Mississippi and he would have returned in 1872 to talk about life in Nevada, he would have saw one dominated by the big mining concerns and the big ranchers and the, you know, big business and the railroads, not the small proprietors anymore. So um, now contained within this whole book of roughing it, and one reason maybe many people go to this book is an explanation and an account of how Twain entered into his work as a journalist in Nevada. And it wasn't, it's presented as not hard for him. Basically he gets washed up as a speculator after he loses his millions, which as I talked about last time is, is never really confirmed to be real. It was always an imaginary millions. It wasn't actual money that he lost. It was um, a claim that in theory was worth a million dollars, but in practice probably wasn't and maybe wouldn't have sold for that much. And even if it was sold for that, it wouldn't have made that much money. It's just not how these things need to work. It was a speculative market. Boom to be collapsed and taken over by more serious capitalists who could extract value from there through the exploitation of labor. 
because that's how where value comes from. Value in a capitalist economy comes from extracting surplus value from labor, not just by having value. For the short term, you can speculate. Short term, you can make a buck, right? Like Bitcoin, right? For a, for a, you know, you can play the game for a while, but eventually, if there's not value there, if there's not value being extracted, real value is going to collapse. Anyways, uh, where there is real value, of course, is in his job as a as a junior city editor, where he's given a salary of twenty five months uh, as a starting salary, and he's essentially a nobody. Like when he does this, he's got. I think he, he the reason he gets hired is because he's writing like letters. He's writing like basically freelance stuff for the newspapers, and they're like, "Well, why don't you just work here full time? We, we need the people." Um, and what he did is he walked a beat around Virginia City, Nevada. Um, and it's really fascinating stuff about how he managed slow news days. You know, it's like you can, you know, inquests were always one way he could do that, right? We get a, he gets a scoop on the school budget from, from competing newspapers by trapping a guy down in, like, you know, mine or something. Um, that may have been an exaggerated story. I don't know, but it's fascinating stuff of just how he crafts a narrative for the daily newspaper that's built partially on truth, but it seems at the end as exaggerated as most of his stories in his autobiographical work seem to be. So he's learning how to do this. Um, But one thing that's really common and pushed is the familiar journalistic fascination with conflict, scandal, and violence. If it bleeds, it leads. And certainly that was true then, just as it's true now. If it bleeds, it leads. Um, But how much, my question is, how much of this Wild West is just that, is just an exaggeration pushed by newspapers trying to sell these early newspapers in the frontier trying to survive in a very competitive market right we, we see how competitive it is with the, the fighting over like the school budget thing um so that if you get the school budget first you're going to get that newspaper out first one day earlier and you're going to have the attention of the audience for that day and that's going to be value um so if you can if you make it like a tabloid you tabloidize the news you're gonna, you're gonna make money, and this was what Mark Twain was so good at, and one reason we still read his stuff, I think. Murders apparently made Twain the happiest man in the territory, for so it promised him something to write about. It it kept him from having a slow news day. Because you could go to the inquest, you could ask around, asking like the sheriff what's going on, he wanted, you know, get reports from what people see, and and build up a story. We, we, we were fascinated when we read about Slade and his murders. And, and he, Quain was really good at getting into the mind of these, these types of people. So with his job as a, as a journalist secure, Twain eventually became a Western writer of some renown. Right? And we'll look at some of those articles when we uh, get to, at the end of this series. I'll do the short writings, the short nonfiction and fiction at the end of this series. But... Um, he doesn't focus much on that here, his career. 
He uses the space in Rorfinen instead to discuss the social and economic conditions of the territory, and to the degree journalism plays a role there, he exploits that. Right? Um, now, the chapters on the solar boom, I, I need to repeat, are just so fascinating. Um, you know, it's... It's like a game of Old Maid where the deck has 50 Old Maid cards in it. Most of these claims are worthless. They're losers, right? But if you get enough cards, you know, you might be able to pay out. It's, it's like it's speculating in many, many different things at once. But most things you speculate at least in at least have some real value, right? If you speculate in, you know, like bacon and, and uh, stocks and grain and all these other things, they have real value. They're actually things created through labor. If you speculate only in crypto, for instance, you're basically doing this. You, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe you'll be in the short term, make some money from something, but they're pretty much worthless. And I would almost make the claim they're essentially all worthless until big business can come in and basically run this profitably through economies of scale. Now, why I bring this up again, because I talked about it last episode, is this is another big aspect in his journalistic career when he writes about it. So it's something he brings with his ex personal experiences as a, as a silver prospector. But in the later part of the story, he's coming at it as a... Um, he's coming at it as like an informed observer, someone who knew about this. And so he reports on that. So a lot of reporting is on this lead or this new prospect, this new prospect is selling shares or whatever. And he would... He would like trade shares of of mines and stuff for 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 leads for his newspaper. So it's all part of it. It's it, the whole system. Even his job is essentially is essentially being propped up by the by the silver uh, by the by the silver prospecting by the silver bubble. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, so it seems like everyone's in on the game, right? I think that's one interesting thing about it. It's kind of like when you're when you're watching The Wire, and you notice like everyone's in on the game in some way. Like police funding depends on that, you know. The the dock workers are in on it, the corner boys are in on it. Everyone's sort of in on the game in some way. It, it's hard to to escape it. Um, is this exploitation? I don't think you know. It, it's not. It will be. That's the thing. It will be exploitation in a few short years when capital moves in. Right. But here, we, you know, it's it's brinkmanship. It's a kind of a working class competition, working class people competing for their piece, like fighting over lottery scratchers. They're fighting over scratchers, essentially. I don't know. Sorry to belabor this point, but I think it's uh, the most fascinating thing about roughing it. Now, another thing he comes to a lot, and I've mentioned this before, is violence in the legal order. Um, now, is the Wild West myth? I, I think to some degree it is, right? Because even here, we, like, the reason Mark Twain's there is because the state is forming, right? And it's not lawless. I, I've been recently been rereading like Black Earth, 
by Thomas Sidner, and that's a very controversial book on the Holocaust. And that makes the case like that the Nazi regime was a state that destroyed states and then deported Jews to those stateless areas where killings could take place. That that seems to be the narrative. That seems to be true. Um, where I'm not so sure is this kind of assumption that where you have no state, violence is inherent to it. Like there are stateless places that didn't have violence, right? There, it's it's almost like how they say barter doesn't isn't naturally occurring. This is something Graeber says in Debt, the first five thousand years. Barter isn't naturally occurring. It occurs when people who are used to money suddenly don't have money or experience hyperinflation or or the breakdown of a currency and then the only way they can conceive of trading things is like oh that cow is worth five chickens right because they see things in those terms but what but he argues that like pre-modern people actually are more likely to do debt like you know, more informal debt relations and credit and stuff like that my point being is places that are truly stateless and have a history of statelessness you know, they have their own social network of power and organization and, and, and peacekeeping, if you will, social peacekeeping, Cult, maybe based on culture, maybe based on kin, kin, right? But if you have a state which is built on violence, a state built in, and nations built on violence and expropriation and the violence of capital and all that, and you take that away, then people... Do turn are, are, do turn to violence because that's that's kind of what's left to them. It's kind of like we, how people go to barter because that's all they know. They don't understand more different ways of organizing the economy, like a gift economy or something. Same way, people without the state, they only know violence. That's why every zombie movie ends with uh, or, or begins with the state going away and people becoming inherently violent with, to each other. That's all that's left. I haven't watched the new mushroom one, but uh, I, I'm just going to guess it's the same kind of stuff. Um, so my, my question here is like, is there, there, there's not a strong state. There's not a strong police force. Does that mean there's not order agreed upon? And there might be some violence in that system, right? Just like in pre-state cultures or early state or stateless societies or, or, um, tribal societies or whatever term you want to use, th there would be violence there too. It would be just me negotiated in different ways, right? Like how the Iroquois would do kidnapping or, or things like that to replace people who died in, in, in violent acts. Bury the hatchet kind of stuff. Um, so anyways, there is a state here though. There's courts, juries, police, executions. Still, despite all that, violence is, seems to be integral to the social network, as described by Mark Twain. So, yeah, I, you know, if the state here, it, it's not a lack of a state. It's a lack of a state that's really not capable of managing an emerging social violence. Or is it the media propping up this idea of violence to sell, to sell newspapers? Or to sell a mythology of it. It's, it's hard to trust Mark Twain, unfortunately. In, in all the stories. We never quite know when he's doing a tall tale on us. At least not as... I mean, if I had a biography, 
maybe I could dig up that a little bit more. But I'm going to take most of this with a grain of salt. Now, he says people's reputations were tied up in their history of violence, right? As I quoted before, if an unknown individual arrived, they did not inquire if he was capable, honest, industrious, but had he killed his man. Juries existed, but seemed not to convict many people. He, he claims at one point that only two people suffered the death penalty um, because juries really couldn't agree to actually prosecute people. So it's like a feckless state at least in terms of dealing with violence, or it's a state that just comes to terms with and accepts violence. Twain associates violence and vice with the prosperity of the region, in fact. Uh, he writes, and this is him from the perspective of a, of a journalist now, quote, a crowded police docket is the surest sign that trade is brisk and money plenty. But crime is not the only sign of vibrance. Twain puts the emergence of literary journalism in the same way. So I do think there is uh, some really fascinating stuff to say in this section of the, the book. Of course, connecting to the stuff we've already looked at, but also um, also a, you know, it kind of takes us to a different level that he didn't see as a, as a, just a prospector. As a, as a journalist, he somehow sees it a little bit in a, in a broader way. He sees the state. He sees the function of the police, the function of the courts. And, and he's able to have a broader social kind of analysis at this point. Um, so I guess that's it. Um, again, I'm not doing a chapter by chapter read through with this section just because they're so short and so many. Um, and I didn't really take notes chapter by chapter in the, on, on this book. But in the next episode, I will finish up my look at Roughing It. And I'll first finish up this volume of the Library of America uh, with uh, his California and Hawaii um, parts of this book, which is kind of almost like it could have been another book. It could have been another travelogue because it doesn't really connect so much to the Nevada stuff. But it's 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 part of his early life. It's It's before the the trip to Europe. So it fits in in that way. So uh, I guess that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening and I will see you next time. I just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends.